Last week we left off at verse number 17. And so we'll pick it up on verse number 18 where the Bible says this. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, and even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they shall they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. For a few minutes this morning, I'd like to speak to this subject, harmony in the home. Harmony in the home. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll dive in this morning. Father, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. Lord, thank you that we can come together and sing about your love and about your good plans for us. And Lord, I pray that we would recognize that you are sovereign and that you are always working. And God, even if we don't see it or sense it, we trust that you are in control in our lives. And Lord, I pray that today we would, in the middle of a culture that is so often confused about the home dynamic and so often confused about marriage and identity, Lord, I pray that we would understand that your word speaks to these issues and your word gives us guidance and direction uh, for our lives. And Lord, I pray that we would have a better understanding of these verses and that we would respond to them accordingly. And we love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said today, how many of you are hosting a Thanksgiving meal this week? Can I see your hands? You're hosting a Thanksgiving meal. Can you just leave your hands up for a second? Can we have a word of prayer for these people today? They are about to encounter some stress. And uh, there's a lot that goes into hosting a Thanksgiving meal. Some of you are nodding like, I know, I'm already stressed about it. Uh, the, the, the meal prep and the dishes and the family drama and uh, uh, the cleaning up afterwards and the family drama. There's a lot that goes into a Thanksgiving meal. And a few years ago, we were celebrating Thanksgiving with uh, my family and a bunch of other family members, and we were sitting at the table. And this was when my oldest daughter at the time was only three years old, and, and I noticed that she wasn't very hungry, and she wasn't really eating her Thanksgiving meal. And Katie and I, we weren't really sure why this was, and we noticed that there was a whole bowl of butterballs on the table. And we noticed that that bowl was empty uh, before the meal really even started. And my daughter, Liv, was just kind of popping in butterballs into her mouth, and that was her Thanksgiving meal. And uh, sometimes uh, Thanksgiving can be 
stressful with uh, all that's involved. Sometimes the holidays can produce a level of stress or anxiety uh, that might be attached to that. And the reality is sometimes family uh, can be stressful. But there's good news because today, as we look to Ephesians chapter number 5, we're going to see that God designed the home to not be a place of hostility, But God designed the home to be a place of harmony. And God actually wants us to experience joy and peace within uh, the home. And he's going to talk about that in Ephesians chapter number 5. He's going to talk about how we can have a healthy, happy, and harmonious home. How many of you would say, that sounds interesting, if my home could be happy, healthy, and harmonious? Anybody interested in that this morning? A few years ago, Jimmy Fallon, he asked his followers on Twitter to tweet out their dumbest family fight. And this lady, Kelly2980, on Twitter said this. This past Christmas Eve, my aunt called my brother's dog ugly. My sister-in-law replied that her granddaughter was ugly, so my aunt punched her. Hashtag dumbest family fight. Okay, how many of you would say, I think we could all benefit from what the Bible has to say about a happy home, right? And uh, Paul's going to break this down for us in Ephesians chapter 5. And there's many practical truths that we can learn from today. But before we jump into the text and start breaking down these verses, I think it's helpful to pause for a moment and remove our Western eyes for a moment. Because when we approach this text with everything that we're accustomed to, we are generally accustomed to the principles that Paul is going to share. When he says, husbands, love your wives, and in chapter 6, children, obey your parents, and Lord, for this is right. We're generally familiar in Western culture with these principles. But we have to recognize that that was not the case in the first century. When Paul wrote this letter, and when the Ephesians opened up this letter to read it, these things were shocking and radical to their culture. Many of these things were unheard of. You have to remember, there were three predominant influences, uh, cultural influences in the first century. There was, of course, Jewish culture. And in Jewish culture, women were not held in high regard. In fact, many times a woman was viewed as a possession rather than a person. And that's why when Jesus came, many young Jewish girls were refusing to get married or or didn't want to be married because they were fearful of what might happen in that marriage. And so uh, that was Jewish culture. The, The second predominant culture of influence was Greek culture. In a Greek culture, the Greeks expected their spouse to uh, take care of their legitimate children and to take care of uh, the home. But when it came time for pleasure and companionship, they would look elsewhere. And so that's why in Greek culture, prostitution was really just kind of a way of life. And when they were looking for companionship, they wouldn't look uh, inside their own home. In fact, the famous Greek philosopher Socrates, he said this, Is there anyone to whom you entrust more serious matters than to your wife? And is there anyone to whom you talk less? And so you had Jewish culture, you had Greek culture, and then you had Roman culture. And in Roman culture, uh, marriage was really all over the map. People were getting married and divorced and married and divorced. In fact, uh, the biblical scholar Jerome, he records an account in Rome where a woman was married to her 23rd husband, and she herself was his 21st wife. How many of you would say that's a lot of wedding cake right there? Okay, that's a lot of marriages and a lot of celebrations. Now, we have to remember when we approach Ephesians chapter number 5, that's the backdrop to which Paul is writing. And so when Paul says things like, husbands, love your wives, and children, obey your parents, uh, these things were radical. These things were uh, not often heard of, and these principles changed the world for the better. Uh, These principles changed families for the better. In fact, uh, William Barclay, he said this, it's impossible to exaggerate the cleansing effect that Christianity had on home life in the ancient world and the benefits that it brought to women. And so these principles that Paul is talking about are the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, they change the world. They change families for the better. And tragically, what we're seeing now in our culture is those same principles that once changed the world 
Now we're drifting from them once again. Uh, Those same principles that helped establish a healthy, harmonious, happy home, now we're drifting from them again, and we no longer view marriage the same way that the Bible tells us to view marriage. In fact, uh, in the United States, marriage has declined by 60% since the 1970s. We have a a decreasing uh, perspective of the value of marriage in our culture. Now, there's a reason why the devil has his sights set on the home. And the reason why is I believe that the catalyst for world change begins in the home. Uh, We're never going to change the culture. We're never going to change the world if we can't learn to live uh, in the context of our own homes, if we can't rule our own hearts. That's why Francis Folk said, the most vital of these relationships are those of the family. For in every age, the home must be the place where, above all, the peace and harmony, the love and discipline of Christ are most clearly manifest. And so if there's anything that we ought to be serious about today, it's the home. And we have to recognize today that the devil wants nothing more than to disrupt the home, to destroy your marriage, to infiltrate your home, to uh, mess with the minds of your children. And there ought to be some men today. There ought to be some women today that would say like Joshua in Joshua chapter 24, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It doesn't matter what direction the culture is is going. I'm not going to determine and base my worldview on the culture. I'm going to base my worldview on God's word because God's word is infallible. It's inerrant. It's unchanging. And so Paul is giving us these principles and he's sharing God's design that can help us protect the home so that we can experience harmony in the home. And so what I want to do today, as we look to Ephesians chapter 5 and as we kind of unpack these verses uh, together this morning, I want to give us four ways that we can instill harmony in the home. Would that be all right today? Uh, Four ways that we can instill harmony in the home. If you're taking notes, uh, number one is this. You have to focus on being filled. Focus on being filled. You say, well, what does that mean? Notice verse number 18. It says this. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled. Everybody say filled. But be filled with the Spirit. And so Paul says, don't be uh, filled with alcohol as was common in Ephesus, but rather, by contrast, be filled with the Spirit. And I think it's imperative to note that before Paul gets into the nuts and bolts of relationships and and uh, tips and tricks for relational living, uh, before he gets into the nuts and bolts and the logistics of relationships, he says, first, it's imperative that you know that you must be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Now, Now, sometimes amongst Christian circles, And in the world today, people can be confused about the Holy Spirit. And uh, sometimes people don't understand, especially if you're new to Christianity and and someone starts talking about the Holy Spirit. But what does that mean? And and who is the Holy Spirit? And sometimes people think the Holy Spirit is kind of like a force, like the force in Star Wars, like like that's the Holy Spirit or like a feeling that you get. We have to understand that the Holy Spirit is not a force or a feeling. The Holy Spirit is a person. And upon the moment of salvation, when you pray to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit took up residence in your life. Uh, You were indwelled by the Holy Spirit. In fact, uh, Jesus said this in John chapter 14, verse 17. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. And so this is good news that the moment that you prayed and received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. And and this is encouraging to know that he dwells within you. That means 
that we don't have to do life according to our flesh and what we think, but we can surrender and yield to the Holy Spirit, and we can experience his power in our relationships. And so this is good news. He goes on, and he describes the purpose and the function of the Holy Spirit in John 16, 13. Where Jesus says this, how be it when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you. He will guide you. He will guide you into all truth. This, this is so important today because the enemy wants nothing more than to guide you away from truth and to deter you from truth. But when we are filled with the spirit, when we pray and ask the Holy Spirit to fill us, he will guide us into all truth for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear that he shall speak and he will show you things to come. And so one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit is to guide us into truth and to show us those things to come, to help us understand the word of God, to help us understand what we're reading. That's why D.L. Moody, he said this, the Bible without the Holy Spirit is a sundial by moonlight. We need the filling of the Holy Spirit to illuminate the word of God for us so that we can understand that which we are reading. And so Paul says, hey, you want to have harmony in the home? You want to have victory in your marriage? You have to focus on being filled with the Spirit. Uh, Focus on being filled in your household. By the way, in the New Testament, whenever you see the word filled, it always means the same thing. It always means a total domination uh, to, be con- to, uh, to be consumed totally by something. Yeah. And many times we're not filled with the Spirit because we're filled with something else. Yeah, what we're filled with some sort of sinful appetite. Yeah. We're filled with some, for- some sort of lustful pleasure. We're, f- we're filled with something else, but we're-, we're called to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, when he says, be filled with the Spirit, in that verse, Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. In the Greek language, it's, it's in the ongoing sense. It's, it's continuing on. In other words, you could read it this way, be being filled with the Spirit. And so it's not just a one-time thing. Uh, being filled with the Spirit is a moment-by-moment thing, that we are indwelled by the Spirit one time at salvation, but being filled with the Spirit is something that we should be praying for on a daily basis. And sometimes it's a moment-by-moment thing. Uh, sometimes we can be filled with the Spirit, uh, driving to work, and then somebody cuts you off, and all of a sudden you're filled with the flesh, and you're thinking some other thoughts, and then you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit again. And so he says, be being filled with the Spirit. It's an ongoing discipline to pray and invite the Holy Spirit to work uh, in our lives. Now, you say, okay, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to be filled with the Spirit. Now, what does that look like? How do I know, how will I know if I'm filled with the Spirit? Well, I'm so glad that you asked because Paul gives us the evidences of that. Notice verse number 19. He's going to give us an evidence of being filled with the Spirit. Verse 19. He says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, does verse number 19 mean that we only communicate in song form? That would be kind of fun, right? Like, good morning. How are you today, Seth? Great job in worship. It was a great day today. Um, That's not what he's talking about. But although that would be fun. Anybody agree with me today? That's just kind of how we communicated. Seth, one person. Thank you. (laughs) He's talking about when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, that there's going to be uplifting, joyful communication in your life. That God will put a song in your heart that you're going to be able to speak to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Uh, In other words, there's going to be uplifting conversation in your home if you're filled with the Holy Spirit. 
if there's not uplifting communication in your home, then maybe you need to uh, be filled with the Spirit once again and pray and invite Him into your home. Uh, there needs to be godly, joyful communication in your household. I read re- recently in Home Life magazine, it said that 70% of communication is miscommunication. <laughs> Uh, that there's a lot of confusion taking place. But when you're filled with the Spirit, there's going to be uplifting communication. That's the first evidence of being filled with the Spirit. The second evidence of the Holy Spirit is found in verse number 20. You still with me today? Verse 20. He says, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit, there will be a radical sense of gratitude in your life. Giving thanks always to God for all things. Now, when he says giving thanks for all things, he's not saying that we're thankful for something that is inherently evil or something that is opposed to God. We're not giving thanks for something that God is opposed to, but we have to recognize that we can always give thanks to God for being God, no matter what evil might be around us. Uh, There is a radical sense of gratitude in the life of a believer that is filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, There is this uncommon contentment. And so there's uplifting communication when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, but then there's uncommon contentment that we are thankful people when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We live in an unthankful generation, and we live in a generation that's always looking for what's next, what's new. I'm looking for the next season and the next season of life, and if I can get this, then I'll be happy, and if I can reach this accolade, then I'll be happy, and if I can make this dollar amount, then I'll be happy. And we're always looking to something else. That's why one pastor called it living in the land of Ur. He says some people are living in the land of Ur where they're always just looking for better, newer, shinier, happier. Uh, They're just constantly looking to what is next. And when we're constantly looking to what is next, we're missing out on the blessings of now. And so he's saying, giving thanks always to God for all things. There's going to be radical gratitude in your life. I believe that if there's gratitude in your heart, there will be gladness in your home. That's how God works and operates, that we can experience uh, a gratitude that is uncommon in uh, in our culture today. Paul said this in Philippians chapter 4, verse number 11. He said, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. He says, I've learned, by the way, contentment requires a classroom. He says, I've learned to be content. Can I tell you? It's not wrong to have possessions, but it is wrong for possessions to have you. And he says, I've learned that I don't need the latest and greatest. I've learned in whatever season I'm in to be content. Then he says, I know how to be abased. That means I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Uh, Paul said, I've learned to be content, and God has put a spirit of gratitude in my heart. And there ought to be some followers of Jesus on this Praise and Thanks Sunday that we would recognize we have so much to thank him for, so much to praise him for. We have a home in heaven when we die. We have a relationship with the God that created us. We have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit of God. We have a local church community that we can fellowship. Can I tell you that we have everything that we need to live a life of godliness for his glory. And so often our lives are characterized by grumbling when they should be characterized by gratitude. You want to know that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. There's going to be uplifting communication and there's going to be uncommon contentment in your life. And so we have to focus on being filled. You want to have harmony in the home? It starts with the individual. I'm going to be filled with the spirit and and sensitive and yielding to what God wants me to do. Now, this leads us to our second thought if you're taking notes today. Number two is this. We then have to find victory in submission. 
Find victory in submission. This is one of the upside-down ways of God that victory spiritually comes by way of surrender. Have you ever noticed that uh, surrender is something that goes counterintuitive to our, to our instincts as humans? We don't like to surrender. We don't like to give in. If you watch an MMA fight, they don't want to surrender. They're going to be getting choked out. And if you, if you tap out, you know, you, you lost. But spiritually speaking, victory comes by way of submission. And, and the same is true in the context of marriage. Now, notice how Paul is going to describe it for us, starting in verse number, starting in verse number 21. It says this, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Verse 22, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. By the way, ultimately submission is not for a human. Ultimately, it's for the Lord. Now, sometimes people can pull verse number 22 out of context and they'll kind of just quote that in isolation. But you can't read verse number 22 without also reading verse number 21. Because verse number 22 is a simple and specific application of verse number 21. So verse number 21 says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives then submit uh, unto your own husbands. And so uh, before we get into the specific application, we have to first recognize that submission in marriage is mutual. That, that, that victory comes by way of surrender uh, one to another. It, it, victory does not come by way of stubbornness. Victory comes by way of submission. And, and so often we are struggling and we're fighting and there's conflict and we're striving to make a point. And there are times when it seems as though we want to make a point more than we want to make peace. And Paul says, hey, if you want to experience victory, there has to be this mutual level of surrender. Now, let's keep reading. We'll notice a specific application of this in verse number 23. He says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Now, Paul gives several illustrations there in those few verses on submission. He says, remember, Jesus gives us the ultimate example of submission and surrender when he said, not my will, but thine be done. Uh, Jesus was submissive to the will of the Father. And then all of us today are commanded to be submissive and to surrender to uh, the will of God. The, the, the church is required to be submissive to Christ. And then he says that, that uh, in verse number 23, that the husband is the head of the wife. And so we have to recognize that men and women were created with equal worth, equal value, and yet different roles and functions in the context of marriage. And this is what Paul is teaching. Uh, Jay Yoder, he put it this way. He said, there is no difference in worth, but in the family for its order and its unity, there must be leadership. And the responsibility of the leader is that of the husband and father. And so Paul is talking about this dynamic in, in marriage and uh, God has designed the husband to be the leader of the home. We'll talk about what that looks like uh, here in a moment. But the idea here is, is if you want to find victory, it's going to come by way of submission. Now, there's an illustration of this that I want to share. And it's in the Old Testament, and it's in a family relationship and some family drama that was taking place between Abram and Lot, his nephew. And they're about to enter into their new homeland, and they experience this conflict, they experience this, this fight, this strife and drama. But Abram resolves it in a godly way that I think we can use as a practical application for us. Would that be okay today? Uh, I want to read a few verses in Genesis. Genesis chapter 13, verse number 5, it says this. And Lot also, which went with Abram, so this family is going together, had flocks and herds and tents, and the land that they were going to was not able to bear them. 
that they might dwell together, for their substance was great so that they could not dwell together. They had so much stuff that they couldn't live in the same land. This is like first world problems. This is like, I don't have enough garages to fit all my Ferraris in. And so now we have this uh, fight about this. And they, they were so blessed and they were materially blessed that they couldn't even dwell in the same land because Abram had so much stuff and Lot had so much stuff. And so now they're fighting about this. Who's going to get what land? Genesis 13, 7. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And so now Abram and Lot, they're at odds. And now uh, the herdmen, uh, the herdsmen, they're at odds and they're fighting with each other. By the way, while all this fighting is taking place, and the Bible says this strife is taking place, notice what it says at the end of verse number seven. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. While they're having this problem and conflict, the world was watching their relational dysfunction. Can I tell you that your testimony is either hindering or helping other people come to Christ? While they are having this strife and conflict, the Canaanites and Perizzites, they're watching how they're going to handle this conflict. And so they're fighting. They're having this family drama. But then notice what Abram does. Everybody still with me? Verse number eight of the same chapter. And Abram said unto Lot, let there be no strife. So, so Abram's like, I don't want us to be at odds. I don't want there to be a conflict. Let there be no strife. I pray thee between me and thee and between my herdmen and thy herdmen. For we be brethren. Hey, we're family. And since we're family, we're going to resolve this conflict together for we're family. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou will take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. What Abram demonstrates for us is maturity when it comes to resolving conflict. Why? Abram had every legal right as the eldest to choose which land he wanted first. But Abram recognized if there's going to be peace in our family, I'm going to surrender my rights because what's more important than my rights is my restoration with my family. And so Lot, if you want to take the right, I'll take the left. And if you want to take the left, then I'll take the right. What do we see? Uh, We see a picture of Abram saying, I'm going to surrender my rights so that I might see reconciliation in my family. And this is what's required in marriage. And this is what is required in the home, that we would find victory, not by fighting for our rights, but often surrendering our rights and showing mutual uh, submission one to another. And so uh, we have to uh, learn uh, this concept in marriage. Now we're going to lead to our third thought today. Number three is this. We then fuel our level of compassion. So we find victory in submission, but then we're going to fuel our level of compassion. Now, This is an intriguing text, and we're going to get real practical for a moment, and uh, we're going to just kind of have a a real true Bible study today because uh, three and a half of these verses deal with the wives, but then eight and a half verses deal with the husbands. And so Paul said, okay, husbands, you you have some things to work on, okay? And and so um, today we're going to kind of lean in, and we're going to see what the Bible has to say specifically to husbands. Now, last week I mentioned something about a husband and wife, and there was a husband that patted his wife on the leg, and I saw it, and uh, they're going to need some marital counseling, okay? So so maybe don't nudge anybody this morning. That was a joke, by the way. And and we're going to talk specifically to husbands for a moment and what a godly husband should be doing in their household. Now, while these specific verses deal with husbands, I believe there's a general application for all of us today. Everybody doing good so far? All right, so let's notice what should a husband be doing in the household? Here's the responsibility. First, a husband is to love your wife unconditionally. Love your wife unconditionally. Notice verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Biblical love is not an emotion. 
that you feel, biblical love is a decision. Husbands, love your wife, no matter what season you might be in, no matter how you might be feeling, love is a decision. Husbands, love your wives, but then he goes on and he gives an example, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. How many of you would say that's a weighty responsibility? Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. By the way, we should never get over how much God demonstrated his love for us in sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. We should never get over the fact that Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life and he went to the cross on Calvary and there there was a crown of thorns that was placed on his head. And there were nails that were placed in his hands and in his feet and his back was whipped over and over and over again. Just like we remembered at communion just a moment ago. But we should never get over the great love that God has demonstrated for us. By the way, on this Praise and Thanks Sunday, I am so thankful that Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross for your sin and for my sin. And three days later, he rose again from the dead. And that's why we worship him today. He is alive and well, and then he says, husbands, love your wife like that. That's a sacrificial love. That's a selfless love. Husbands, love your wives unconditionally. But then there's a second admonition for the husbands. Uh, help her grow spiritually. And so a husband is to love uh, his spouse unconditionally, but then help her grow spiritually. Notice verse number 26. That he might sanctify and cleanse it uh, by the washing of the water by the word. So here Paul's talking about this principle of sanctification. And if you're unfamiliar with sanctification, at the moment of salvation, when you prayed and received Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you were justified. You were declared righteous. You were forgiven of your sins. You, were, uh, you experienced justification. But then, as we're here on earth, we are in the process of sanctification. And sanctification means to grow and to be set apart and to become more and more like Christ. And so, until we get to heaven, we're growing in this process of sanctification. And so, Paul says that Jesus is sanctifying the church. How does he do it? Verse 26. How does this process of growth happen? Verse 26. Cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. You know how you can grow in sanctification? Grow in the word of God. Uh, this is how, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereunto according to the word of God. So we grow in sanctification by uh, growing in God's word. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And so uh, he's giving this picture that Jesus is sanctifying the church, verse 27, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And so Christ is sanctifying the church for spiritual growth, and he's using that as an example, an illustration, saying a husband then should help his wife grow also in sanctification. A husband should lead his spouse and help her grow uh, spiritually. Now, there's many different ways that a husband can do this. A husband can uh, establish family devotions. A husband can say, you know what? We're going to uh, go to church with our family. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to serve in the church. We're going to listen to good podcasts. Or uh, we're not going to allow this kind of entertainment in our household. We're going to be guardians of what comes into the house and what content that we consume. Uh, but I would encourage every husband in the room to consider, how am I going to lead and help my family to grow spiritually? This is something that we're called to. And then the third area that we're called to as husbands is to care for our spouse completely. And so first, we love her unconditionally. We help her grow spiritually, and then we care for her completely. Notice what he says in verse 28. 
He says, so ought men. So again, he's saying, just like that, so men ought to uh, love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, uh, the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. And so he's saying, love your wife as your own body. Uh, I read a couple of years ago that LeBron James who plays for the Los Angeles Lakers. I read that, yes, thank you, the Spirit said, thank you so much for supporting the Lakers this morning. And uh, uh, LeBron James, he uh, spends annually, every year on his body, he spends a million dollars just to take care of his body on nutritionists, on physical therapists, and, and uh, just making sure that his body is, is healthy. And, and what Paul is saying is just like someone would take care of his own body, that's how you should provide and take care of your spouse. Just like if you're sick and you're not feeling well, you want to make sure you take care of your body and put the right medicine and, 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 and exercise and do these things. Uh, you ought to care for your spouse in the same way. Now, this all is going to lead us to our fourth and final thought today. Do you have time for one more this morning? Here's the fourth way that we can instill harmony in the home. Number four, fulfill your God-given role. Fulfill your God-given role. A few years ago, I was on a road trip, and I was driving through Las Vegas, and I heard about this new Taco Bell that they built on the Las Vegas Strip, and it's this massive Taco Bell. Has anybody been to this Taco Bell in Las Vegas? And uh, uh, this Taco Bell is massive, and probably what it's most known for is there is a wedding venue inside that Taco Bell. And so if you want to get married in Taco Bell, you can accomplish and fulfill your dreams. You can get a bean burrito and a spouse within a matter of minutes, okay? And so uh, you can go and uh, experience a wedding ceremony. In fact, it's one of the most popular places in Las Vegas to get married. Taco Bell. And although we can be facetious, I think the reality is that speaks to the culture's view of marriage as a whole. That it's something that is not held in high regard and high esteem. And it's something that's temporary and often transactional. But what Paul's going to do here as we close with these few closing verses is he's going to actually talk about God's design for marriage. By the way, it's so important that we recognize this. Marriage is God's idea. Okay, don't miss that. Because if God designed marriage, then he gets to define what marriage is. Marriage isn't our idea. It's not the government's idea. It's not man's idea. God designed it. God instituted it. And so we ought to pay attention to how God designed it so that we can follow his design that will lead to human flourishing. Everybody tracking with me today? And so Paul's going to actually go back to Genesis. And he's going to quote from Genesis about God's design for marriage as we close. So notice what he says in verse 31. He says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall be joined, cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. So he's quoting from Genesis chapter two. And he says, a man will leave his father and his mother. Now, why did God command this to Adam who didn't have a physical father and mother? He's telling Adam and Eve, leave your father and mother and cleave unto your spouse. Well, Adam didn't have a father and mother. And so the reason God did this is he was establishing a precedent to say this is how marriage should function. Uh, this is what marriage should look like, that a man should leave his father and mother and cleave unto his spouse, be joined unto his spouse. Uh, that word uh, in the Hebrew language, it carries the idea to be glued to something. It's inseparable. There, there's a commitment that's involved, but it's deeper than a commitment. It's a covenant. In fact, the word carries the idea of a covenant or a binding promise. And this really is what it boils down to in our culture today, uh, that so many people view marriage as a consumer relationship. What's in it for me? 
But fundamentally, according to God's design, marriage is not a consumer relationship. Marriage is a covenant relationship. It's a covenant relationship horizontally between man and wife, but it's also a covenant relationship and ultimately with God. We're making a covenant with God. And so he says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined, shall be cleave, shall cleave unto his spouse. This is the great mystery, verse 32, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And then in verse number 33, and I'm gonna close with verse number 33, Paul's gonna share this verse that has been used uh, over and over again in marriage counseling and marriage books. In fact, there's whole books that are written about this one verse. And there's marriage conferences that are based on this one verse. But it really boils down to, and it describes to us our God-given role. And if you want to experience harmony in the home, you're going to understand and seek to fulfill your God-given role. And here it is, verse number 33. Everybody ready for it? Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular, so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. The word reverence carries the idea of showing honor, showing admiration. And so here it is. The husband is commanded to love unconditionally, and the wife is commanded and called to respect and show honor unconditionally. And if you want to experience harmony in the home, you will seek to freely give love and respect in the way that God has designed us to do so. Charles Spurgeon said this, when the home is ruled according to God's word, angels might be asked to stay with us and they would not find themselves out of their element. And this should be the desire of every one of us. I want to experience harmony in the home and follow God's design and God's pathway to experience harmony in the home. How do we do it? We focus on being filled. We find victory in submission. We fuel our level of compassion and we fulfill our God-given roles. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.